Hello, my name is Philip Camella, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. The purpose of this show is to push the boundaries of science and religion, and that means pushing these terms beyond our everyday and I think outdated conceptions of them. The new spirituality, for example, is a step beyond the old-time religion. As today in this movement, this, the new spirituality movement, we're breaking through interpretive barriers, these old interpretations of religious texts, to new conceptions of religion that, trans, that transcends and incorporates the old one, but, but this of course is a work in progress. But when we look ahead, we also see that science itself has to change. There are far too many developments, from quantum theory to parapsychology to energy healing to neuroscience, near-death experience, phantom limbs, on and on, showing that our current conception of science is both limited and limiting. So what will science look like in the future? To answer this question, I'm happy to have as a guest today Dr. Elliot Maynard, who has written a fascinating and mind-opening book on this topic. The book is entitled, Brave New Mind, Living in a Future Science World. Now, Elliot Maynard is a neo-Renaissance scientist. His background spans the field of global ecology, coral reef ecology, oceanography, tropical rainforest biology. He has a Ph.D. in consciousness research and has served in the faculties of Adelphi University and Dowling College in New York. He's also a certified professional consultant to management and has been active in the corporate world as well. He's the founder and president of Arco Celios Foundation in Sedonia, Arizona, and has been active in the Aerospace Technology Working Group, the Humanitad International Leadership Foundation, and the U.S. Psychotronics Association and the World Future Society. So he has the right credentials to be talking about future science. Uh, Elliot Maynard, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Philip. I appreciate you having me here. Okay, well, I thought that there's nobody better to be talking about the future of science than someone who's written a book on it. And I was fascinated by this book because it really assembles a lot of the sort of cutting-edge ideas, not only in consciousness, but also in technology. And so let's start things off here by, by asking simply, what led you to write this book at this stage of your career? Uh, actually, I have, uh, in my own past uh, experiences in, in education, in business, and science, I've stumbled through many disciplines and often learned in spite of the system. And 
what happens, what seems to happen is when we gain a certain amount of wisdom or enlightenment, as you want to call it, uh, with, as the years go by, we have a, have a duty, a responsibility to share this. It's kind of a compulsion, and I tongue-in-cheek refer to it as an offer we can't refuse. What do you think science is going to look like in the future? Ah, uh, this is what the book is all about. And I'm going to give uh, a couple of little examples. Uh, I talk a lot about medical intuitives, uh, miraculous healings, which I have witnessed. Uh, these are so numerous uh, that you can, if anyone wants to research, they're everywhere. Again, uh, along with the other topics and evidence that you mentioned. Now, one small example is, interestingly, uh, just last evening I was thinking about this whole situation and suddenly came to the shattering glimpse of the obvious that technology is shaping consciousness. And I know this may be preaching to the choir in certain <laughs> areas, but I'll give two examples. One, uh, I have experienced, uh, I have worked with some very um, renowned surgeons and scientists, and virtually all of them, when I got to know them, admitted something they would have never talked about a couple of decades ago, ago that they are using their intuitive senses to become, uh, uh, to be on that leading edge. Now, because of our technology, the scanning technology, medical technology advances, more and more people are being revived from strokes and formerly uh, fatal heart attacks and are experiencing uh, the other side, so to speak, of the veil. Right. Uh, again, we, one of the topics in the books is removing the death, the fear of death. Instead, it can be regarded as graduation uh, ceremony. And here we have technology producing more evidence in the uh, stories that these folks tell when they come back. One of the, now, now what do you mean by um, intuitive sense? A lot of folks are using this term, and, and I, I wonder what, what do you mean by it, intuitive sense? I, uh, I uh, included in a, in a topic, I have 25 keys to uh, interfacing with the quantum field, keys right. to enlightenment. And one of these keys is called supersensonics, which was a term invented by Christopher Hills, who was uh, a consciousness researcher. Now, supersensonics refers essentially, I bring it down to simply the intuitive sense, the gut feeling. Right. And all real leaders in business and science and religion seem to have this ability. And the important thing to remember here is that has been until perhaps the last two or three centuries a very very powerful survival mechanism for humans uh, in the wild if you think about it keeping those antennae out to see who's tracking you or if you're tracking a prey uh, what you need for food all of these things now suddenly with this onslaught of technology which has been relatively fast on a historical stand from a historical perspective uh, we have new pressures, uh, evolutionary pressures, and we can take this sense, this wonderful uh, survival imperative, and begin to acknowledge it, uh, allow children in educational and family situations to talk to their imaginary friends, to 
go with these gut feelings and begin to use them in a very positive and productive way in business and personal life and anything else you do. Well, one of the one of the interesting things here is that a lot of what you say sort of points towards an evolution of consciousness of consciousness. And we could use all sorts of different words. We could say evolution of mind, evolution of spirit. Uh, I'm using consciousness because it sounds like the right term here. And it reminds me of both uh, Siri Aurobindo and of Pierre Del Jardin. And in, 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 the latter, in the latter book, or the one of The Phenomenon of Man by Pierre Del Jardin, and I'm sure I'm not pronouncing his name right, uh, he talks about uh, how material evolution or Darwinian evolution leads to uh, consciousness evolution, where you go from a solo mind, individual ego, to more of a national mind, global mind, than than a universal mind. It's sort of the same thing that Aurobindo talks about. And I think that what is uh, very compelling here is that uh, this, to me, is sort of the background to what we're experiencing right now in science. We're experiencing this this idea or this or this phenomena that is showing that we are not separate machines, but that there is this there is this connection, and we could call it the quantum field, the zero point field. Uh, the, the you know the mind field all sorts of terms we could use to describe it but it shows that uh, because of this interconnectedness that we gain insights into uh, other people into healing into the world at large by sort of tapping into this 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 collective consciousness uh, it, re it reminds me of when I was doing research on the placebo effect the importance of bedside manner, uh, the how a doctor with better bedside manner is more successful than one who is cold, impersonal, and sterile. And so, and, and I know that you yourself talk about collective un, the, the collective consciousness. Is this is this sort of what you're talking about? This this uh, or part of what you're talking about? This movement towards a collective consciousness yes absolutely and when you begin to bring the technology and the consciousness technology as we call it uh, together uh, this is what happens now Tillyard de Chardin was probably one of the first to conceive of what we now call the global brain the global mind field you mentioned that term but since the, his time, I believe he was a monk or uh, in, in, in the church, and the church has always had certain leaders who have had special abilities to interface with the quantum field. Now, if you fast forward and add to the global brain, the global mind field concept, the Internet, which did not exist at that time, right. we now have an electronic, uh, global mind field, and then add all the satellites and all of the other technology that is plugged into this. So here we have a whole new kind of global mind field, and Earth itself has evolved in its consciousness, if you want to look at things this way. And what has happened basically to create this whole situation 
is that as physicists have gotten finer and finer technology to delineate the particles and keep going down, down, down to smaller and smaller particles, there comes a point where they hit the wall in the sense that consciousness technology and hard technology, the border between those becomes indistinguishable. So if you move ahead again, uh, I think that the great difference in the time now where all of these so-called ascension energies, or however you want to put it, have speeded up, is that we now have a new evolutionary imperative. Is If the human race is to survive as a species, we need to start using consciousness technology and hard technology together. And the book is all about how these are interfaced, and it includes many, many examples of this. Yeah, I think that that's one of the uh, sort of breakthroughs or advances that your your book makes here is that I think that all too often uh, we we uh, we get bogged down in sort of the spiritual side of this topic, and, and I may I may be I may be one of the people that that do, do periodically get bogged down in the philosophy, the theorizing. But, but you also have to be practical. And I think that it is, it is very healthy to connect these consciousness concepts with technology. And I've, I've used the Internet example myself uh, as being sort of a metaphor for a collective unconsciousness or for collective consciousness. And it seems to me that, that the goal here and I think this is what your book is about, is the goal is about aligning technology with human consciousness so that we are, we are uh, enhancing, enhancing our consciousness, enhancing our lives by technology as opposed to using it to, you know, make wars or to uh, destroy the environment. Absolutely. And uh, the whole point is we've been, uh, humanity for thousands and thousands of years has been going through this cycle of uh, kill or be killed, uh, competition, survival of the fittest, destruction of the environment uh, for war machines, for uh, religious institutions, etc., etc., the rise and fall of great civilizations. If you look back at, at brilliant uh people who were able to survive and stand out, folks like Leonardo da Vinci or any great national leaders, um, I think the great difference now is that they were definitely connected with higher sources, but the point is now at this point in time it seems possible for us to do this consciously, and consciously is the key here. And if we do this and observe the learning and interfacing process, we can move into and actually begin to tap into this quantum consciousness field, which is really a living field of creation. It's the kind of thing that athletes speak about when they go into the zone. And yes, it can be applied to any business, this sort of thing. And again, as you say, any business, uh, let's take Monsanto as an example, uh, or a sword. You know, you can use a sword for killing someone, or you can hold it up 
and allow it to be a lightning rod to attract the yeah. light. Yeah. Uh, a simple example are swords into plowshares, another one. Right. So here, uh, yes, the, the concept, say, of genetic engineering, and people are maybe not going to like this, is neither good in, nor bad in itself. It's the unintended consequences and the failure of, of good science to back things up before things get loose. And I think that if we look back in history from the future, we will see this whole GMO thing as a good l example of bringing this kind of mistake into the present so people can look at it and hopefully use genetic engineering for very positive purposes. And there are many examples, again, in the book. It's neither good nor bad. It's how you use it and the ethics involved. Yeah, I thought that was a, a refreshing um, perspective, an open-minded perspective on the whole genetic engineering, uh, genetic modified uh, topic. I thought that, that that was something that I think people need to hear, that it's not necessarily good or bad. It's perhaps a stage in the evolution of understanding how to how to work with nature. This is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm speaking with Dr. Elliot Maynard, the author of the new book Brave New Mind, Living in a Future Science World. And we're talking about what science might look like down the road. Now one of the things that you say in your book uh, that is related to this, uh, Elliot, is is that the conventional scientific thinking is no longer working, that there's a breakdown. Can you talk about that a little bit, about how is, the, how is conventional scientific thinking breaking down? Well, when you get to the point, uh, if your listeners are familiar with the so-called uh, Heisenberg principle and and Schrodinger's cat, it's a uh, theoretical exercise where you put in a, a cat in a cage and subject it to certain stimuli, and they suddenly found that the presence of an observer begins to modify the experiment. Right. And this is where uh, I believe Arthur C. Clarke once made a statement that the very advanced technology can often seem like magic. And the two begin to merge, and uh, this just the natural phenomenon and humans need to begin to understand this consciously if they do they will start to take a responsibility for what we're doing to the environment for they will take reproductive responsibility hopefully and begin to free us of some of these problems that are a kind of a uh, repetition of old paradigms that we keep beating and beating to death now, part of the reason for this is that almost any new breakthrough that, that has happened, you will find uh, that there are a number of people, some of them uh, from very high, supposedly high uh, scientific and uh, institutions and educational institutions, have a knee-jerk reaction. Immediately, you will find a certain percentage of people will suddenly become very resistant to the, having their comfort zone moved. This is why the book is called Brave New Mind, because right. it takes uh, bravery to move into the future. Yeah, I think that there's a lot there. There's, there's a lot there, and I think that the, you know, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle and this whole notion that even under the tenets of science, 
that we are somehow connected to the world is something that we're still working through. And that I think that that uh, thought experiment was in the 1920s, and it's it's been it's been proven time and time again. But it's sort of like um, the the world changed at that point. But but and this is one of my my major issues in my own work is that even is that despite what quantum theory says about the connection between consciousness and little particles, we still act as if the world is separate from us. Yeah. And, and that that is the major problem that we have, I think, in science. Because as soon as as soon as you uh, break down that that separation, or as soon as you join the observer and the observed, all these things start making more sense. Uh, for example, uh, something as simple as energy healing, uh, faith healing, mind over matter. We can go on and on and on. About about how all of a sudden these things start making making more sense now, and I also want to comment upon your use of the word brave, new mind, the title of your book. I also think that you're exactly right that it's courage here that is required in order to change things. We become too set in our ways, and and this and this leads me to um, one of the topics in your book that I, I really liked, uh, which was psychic cleansing. And, and you use this term, and I, I, I was wondering if you could talk about what you mean by psychic cleansing. Well, I've had uh, a number of years of experience. Uh, you mentioned the United States Psychotronics Association. This, uh, I was on the advisory board for that organization a number of years ago, and this is where many of the uh, breakthrough scientists, and they were black sheep at the time, uh, who worked in zero-point energy and what we call non-linear, uh, non-conventional healing technologies, just for a couple of examples. Uh, Tom Bearden, uh, who patented the first, uh, his group patented the first zero-point energy device uh, in history in the U.S. Patent Office, and others, and now they've been able to come out of the closet and just in the last two decades, uh, physicians and scientists have been able to talk about consciousness, their own experiences. Uh, I think a perfect example is some of the astronauts, like Ed Mitchell. Uh, Ed had a, uh, he walked on the moon and he uh, apparently had some experiences with UFO, but the reason that he was open to this is that uh, when he was a teenager, he had a very serious um form of cancer, I believe, and it was healed by um, a healer up in Canada. So this, this set the, the stage for him uh, forming the IONS Institute, which is a consciousness research institute. Now, to just go a little bit farther with this, I tell folks in the book there's an easy way to open yourself to the quantum field. We've been taught never to believe anything we cannot prove to be true. This is the old box paradigm. The new paradigm that I envision, and this book is all about a new operating system for humans and planet Earth. This new one says, flick a little switch in your brain that says you do not believe anything you cannot to be proved to be true statistically, right? That's the hard science. Yeah. Open the switch so that it now opens the possibilities for not believing anything you cannot prove to be untrue. In other words, 
you simply open yourself to the possibilities. Don't jump on it and immediately knee-jerk react to it, but open yourself to the possibilities. And I guarantee if you start thinking of this little concept, a series of miracles will begin to happen in your life. Because I've experienced this, and I, uh, through my own experience, I enjoy sharing it with others so they can do it in their own way. What I, I think comes across here is that science itself is based upon so many things that themselves cannot be proven. And this, this is something that uh, I, that this is one of my major issues in my book, The Collapse of Materialism, that I talk about is, I mean, for example, the multiverse by, by definition cannot be proven. And this, that the multiverse is this new theory that uh, people like Stephen Hawking uh, believe they need in order to explain the fine-tuning um, issues in our current cosmos. Another one is dark matter. We tend to think that, oh, there's dark matter exists. Well, by definition, dark matter can't be proven except by its supposed gravitational effects. And then you get into the laws of nature. Uh, and and the existence of matter at the Big Bang. There's all sorts of things that science itself is taking on faith, but because it's shrouded in this cloak of science, it's they they get away with it, and so that's why I I, I like your approach too, I, I, or better, which is which is assume that it or give give something that you don't believe in the chance that it might exist, such as energy healing is a good example to me suppose that it can exist and and open up that possibility because the world's a better place in my opinion if such things as energy healing do occur i mean i i, I assume you would agree with that 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 uh energy healing is a good thing what 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 is your own experience with healing do you have any your own or energy healing what are what is what are some of your own experiences with that Yes, uh, and, and you know, this is important to me, uh, that the vast majority of, of the topics I write about in the book, I have experienced myself, and I've tried to be as authentic and uh, even delve into my personal experiences. Now, I had a, about a year ago, I had a very serious uh, case of sciatica. I don't know if you're, it's yeah. a pinched nerve in your lower back, and you get shooting, it feels like a, a electric barbed wire shooting all the way down your leg. It's a very uh, insidious kind of condition that can wear you down, wear your spirit down. Yeah. And I uh, engaged a uh, very special person, uh, became actually very close to him. His name is Jerry Wills, W-I-L-L-S. And he uh, has been responsible for some very remarkable healings. And he... I, I got to actually be friends with him and have him work on my back a little bit for two or three sessions and this great weight was lifted off my shoulders so i could get back out and work on the land here uh, in arizona and and it was like a miracle to me and um, i've experienced this and seen this kind of healing with a number of other individuals so i know it to be true and, of course, I envision and speak about Jerry as a medical intuitive. And there are surgeons and others who 
are open to this kind of thing, specialists, oncologists. I know this from the consulting work. Now, what I envision is a group of psychic healers, or I call them, uh, I call it sci-tech, psychic technology, uh, sitting in the operating theater, working to help the operating team function better, and also to help the patient uh, keep his uh, vital levels up and it's been statistically proven, by the way, that the recovery from anesthesia, which is very easily measurable in time, has been very statistically uh, shortened uh, as just one example, using uh, psychics like this. Yeah, and I think that this hopefully is going to be the future of, of medical science because it brings it home. It puts, us, it puts, us, it put it, it puts it right in front of us. In other words, there's nothing more important to us than our health. And and every time a friend of mine gets ill or I get sick or or uh, I hear about stories of people getting like Alzheimer's for example, I it it comes it comes home to me that your health is the number one is the number one priority because without that there's nothing else. And I just hope that in this future science world that you talk about that that energy healing or intuitive healing whatever we're calling it becomes more mainstream and and, and I, I wonder what you think about the chances of that occurring with your experience oh this is this is happening yeah. right before our eyes yeah. and um you know, there are many other things that are also changing our consciousness and in ways that none of the uh, New Age people would have predicted. And I'll, I'll give another example. Uh, you know, I've, I found it a little strange that the um, televisions and the new flat-screen televisions and uh, all of the uh, Android tablet devices and cell phones are increasing their resolution. Now, if you think that light, the energy and information from the higher realms of the quantum field comes in the form of light-encoded packets. This has been determined by many different psychics who have looked at this kind of thing and had the ability to look at the body much as we use our, our scanning devices, our technology devices. And what has happened is that uh, because of this, it becomes easier and easier for this kind of uh, phenomenon to take place once it becomes more public and once we have the critical mass. I, I speak about the hundredth monkey phenomenon as an example of this. You probably know about this. Yeah, I love the hundredth monkey phenomenon. Why, why don't you, why don't you uh, describe what it is? I think it's, I love that concept. Go ahead. Well, this is an interesting story, and, and of course, some people have poo-pooed it, as they do knee-jerk automatically because it disturbs their place of comfort. Yeah, well, this is all about this is all about <laughs> not poo-pooing anything. This, this is this is the beauty of, of my show here is that is that we talk about things that are, that 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 today some people may may view as how can I put this uh, quackery, but tomorrow may be mainstream. But so I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I interrupted you. The well, absolutely, and yeah. yeah, and so the story goes that the, there was a group of Japanese scientists observing a colony of monkeys on an island off the coast of Japan called, I believe it was called Koshima Island, right. and they would uh, bring the monkeys some food, which was 
essentially a bag of sweet potatoes and just dump them on the beach. And at some point, the observers realized that one of the younger monkeys was washing the potatoes in the, in the ocean to clean the sand off it. And then they saw that the, they observed that the mother picked this uh, trick up, and very slowly other members of the troop began to learn this behavior. And at some point, all of the monkeys started washing these the potato, the sand off yeah, the potatoes. Yeah, I love this. Story. Now, what is remarkable is that all of a sudden, boom, all the monkeys are doing it. Yeah. On another island and another monkey colony 75 miles away, in a very short time, all of the monkeys begin washing the sand off their potatoes. That is a quantum phenomenon, a non, so-called non-local, non-linear. Yeah. So this is the, the way the story goes. That's a, it's a great story. This is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm speaking with Dr. Elliot Maynard, the author of the new book, Brave New Mind, Living in a Future Science World. We're talking about the future of science and the hundredth monkey effect. And I, I love the hundredth monkey effect. Not only is it a really fascinating phenomena, but it just, to me, uh, sort of highlights other features of evolution, for example, that we tend to gloss over. And let me, and let me give you one right now. It's in, it's in my own book. There is, there is something in evolution where uh, scientists, biologists have seen the, the, the appearance of species of the same species in in dramatically distant areas like Australia and South America or Alaska and Africa like the same species arose and they asked and and, and so the question is well how how did these same species evolve appear on two such distant parts of the globe and the common and this is this is good. The the common answer to this, if you read a book, uh, for example, in Ancestors' Tale by Richard Dawkins, he's got a he's got a section on this. He, they they basically say, well, the the seeds or the the uh, the uh, eggs must have been flown in birds, or there could be a wooden raft. Uh, it could be the mm -hmm. continental drift, and all these theories. But but to me, it really suggests that there is this collective consciousness underlying everything. And that, that to me, is a better explanation. Uh, I, and I think the 100th monkey effect is so interesting because it points to this concept of critical mass. Which, right, which, which and that I, critical mass is so important, and it's happening as we speak, because think of the miracle of uh, an individual like yourself having their own radio show and this is happening all over the world and interestingly the audiences are worldwide and this levels the playing field uh, because we don't talk about uh, the people of all faiths, all religious backgrounds, all ethnic backgrounds, all geographical locations can now come together and get the same information. So one of the very important things uh, in moving ahead in this evolutionary, the greater perspective, is a concurrence. It's like coherent light, laser light, going right. through uh, fiber optics. And this is why it's so important.
for folks to take a common ground. I, I've suggested, for instance, that why doesn't every religious organization and school start with a little earth blessing, non-denominational, five minutes a day, a little meditation? Yeah. It, it would be a, the world would be a much better place if we could just do that one little thing. No, I think that's. I think that is extremely important because my own view of this is that we need to have something to agree upon and and that and that me and by we i mean for example the the muslims and and the jews and that and the koreans and uh, i'm sorry the north koreans and and the americans and the communists and the capital i mean we need to have something that is that that is deeper that we agree upon uh, as compared to the superficial differences we we might have through nationality politics or religion and and I like I like that I like that concept it, it leads me to one of to to one of my more unfair questions that I'm gonna pose to you um, which is how do you convince the naysayers how do you how do we open minds to this future science world well, it's a funny uh, little tongue-in-cheek thing that, you know, people are, we're, the humans are still monkey-see-monkey-do, yeah. and <laughs> once something becomes, quote, fashionable, the thing to do, all of a sudden, watch people jumping on the bandwagon. A perfect example is Tesla Motors. Look at all the resistance that was put up, and suddenly, as of this new year, we find that two of the major car makers are starting to compete directly with Tesla with their own electric vehicles. Yeah. Bang, just like that. Yeah, yeah. I think that's it's 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 true, but it's it's uh, unfortunate but true. And it leads it leads me. You know, I've been thinking about this myself a lot, and the the role of celebrities in this whole thing. Um, how how we tend to follow celebrities or rich people depend uh ir- irrespective of their education their their upbringing their credentials and that is is that monkey see monkey do and we we really have the the, the monkey metaphors going here but but uh, so that was a good segue between uh, between that and the hundredth monkey effect but it, it also uh, leads to something else that is, uh, is mind-opening in your book, and that is your comments upon education. And I have this one, this one quote um, from your book that I, I think you got from somebody else that I'm looking for here, but it's something like um, that people are smart until they, until, they, um, until they go to school or something, or it's that education that makes us stupid. And 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 what do you what do you think are some of the changes we need to make in our educational system? Uh, one of the, that's that's a good question. One of the things you asked about uh, before was, and this is one of the keys in the book. It's a new education system that I have designed uh, from my own experiences. That's called the University of the Future Project, and it it can be used from kindergarten to through to lifelong learning. Essentially. Rather than focusing, as our conventional education systems do, which are still industrial age uh, design, old paradigm stuff, on a 
quote, norm, in other words, that nasty little word that means you have to get a certain score on your uh, verbal and then on your math, say, for the college boards and on and on. Each child is different, and this education system would involve creating an environment that was not competitive. Instead, it was supportive and synergistic so that each child, each individual, throughout their lives could develop from their own center and then plug in modules that would complement their special abilities. And having a knowledge of consciousness technology from the very beginning, we could, we could move mountains. Uh, one other example is uh, using, making channeling, which is a woo-woo word, a legitimate technical resource. Now yeah. think of the amazing amounts of time, energy, and human resources and, and the impacts on the environment we could avoid by cross-checking using different channelers. And I've done this, I've researched it as a scientist, and you can find the most amazing things through uh, consciousness technology or channeling uh, that you just can't find with our medical technology as exists, as it exists. But through some of these techniques, like uh, I, I mentioned something called Psy Microvision, where uh, intuitive healers can look, they can make themselves small and actually follow a capillary through the brain or look at damaged areas, all of this. This is incredible as a resource. We just need to stop shutting these kinds of wonderful information sources out because actually it's become a, an imperative for survival, I believe, if we're going to make it in the future as a race. Well, this this is where things are getting very interesting, uh, and I, I think that your book is something, to me, it would... <laughs> I'm going to give your book to my daughter to read. I hope, you know, it's like it's it's dangerous doing that because because I I recommend it. She probably won't read it, but but so so, so maybe I'll tell her not to read it. So so it, yeah. it maybe I'll I'll do I'll I'll try that method. But in any event, what where where I'm going with this is that we have to think outside the box. This is what I think your your book does. We 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 too much of what we talk about in our current culture is we talk about science and it's in this box and then and then sort of orbiting this box are things like parapsychology energy healing uh, life after death all these all these things are out there sort of in in the outskirts that are not viewed as having scientific legitimacy and as soon as we break down this separation between us and the world, this is this is what I said earlier, we start opening the field, and and not only to this consciousness stuff, which I'm a big fan of, but also in looking at these these technologies that that will ultimately be the future of our society. I mean, for example, uh, energy. Where where are we going to get the energy of the future? Are we going to continue burning coal forever? I mean, are we going to continue to burn fossil fuels? Obviously, if we cared more about the planet Earth and did that Earth meditation you're talking about, I think we would be devoting more effort to cleaner technologies. 
Yes, that's right on, and and especially uh, this brings up a point that by using coherent meditation, uh, which is proved to be a very effective tool in eliminating uh, conflict and the roots of conflict and even weapons of mass destruction, I speak of this, uh, it, it has a name called Invincible Defense Technology. And some of the uh, more enlightened countries like Ecuador are training uh, different groups of their military to do this to alleviate the cause of dissension in certain areas. This is in the area of conflict uh, prevention, which is one step ahead of conflict resolution. And this can be achieved. So what you were saying is that if you get people meditating on this, rather magically the whole consciousness of the global society will very subtly begin to creep around until it it becomes more uh, in tune with this new this new way of being that humans need to move from the old box like paradigm to the new paradigm that I I have designed in this new operating system which is open ended. Each idea can evolve; it can split off side uh, ideas and whole new areas. It can keep going. There's no end to it. And this is a a different world than what we've lived in in the past. This is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm speaking with Elliot Maynard, the author of Brave New World, Living in a Future Science World. And we're talking about what this future world might look like. And you you hit upon something that is another um, major topic for me, that science itself doesn't talk doesn't walk the talk and but and, and by this i mean uh the definition of science and and i i uh, read up on the definitions before the show and I, I there's a couple sources that i always go to when i when i need to um have a authoritative definition of science but and and one of them is from um, Ernest Meyer, the famous Harvard neo-Darwinian biologist who wrote a bunch of books on on evolution. But he's got this passage where he says something like, science is the open-ended search for truth. And it, it, it ideally it is, but too much, too much we see scientists working within the box, working within this mainstream, materialistic, uh, impersonal, Box that we've been that we've been talking about, and it it's not open-minded. Uh, I I remember uh, Niels Bohr had a quote. You know, Niels Bohr being the one who actually discovered the quantum leap, if I remember correctly, uh, and won the Nobel Prize for Physics in the 1920s. But he said he said something uh, to a friend of his who came up with a theory. He said, "Well, that theory is crazy, but not crazy enough to be true." <laughs> And, and so this, this is what our leading scientists, the, the founders of physics, are saying. They're saying, and Einstein's the same way, and Schrodinger, the, the founders are saying, you've got to go outside the box. And I think that this is one of the major problems we're having right now is that, is that the monkey see, monkey do, is we think that only within this box of science is, is uh, the truth, the theory of everything, going to be found. So yes, and uh, it's even worse than that. In um, in some cases, uh, the scientific establishment has essentially shot itself in the foot over and <laughs> over again. 
Uh, one example, uh, Tom Bearden, Dr. Tom Bearden, who I, I've had a number of dialogues with, uh, he's, again, the zero-point energy uh, uh, inventor. He uh, mentions a man named Dirac, D-I-R-A-C, and you can research this yourself, who developed a theory, and it challenged the existing paradigm so much that the scientific community actually uh, deleted certain areas. They deleted this from textbooks. So this is rather very horrendous kind of black eye for science. And once people get into that grid, and I've been there and worked in research laboratories and universities, you begin to do, say, you want to do a master's or PhD degree, they want you to pick something that you know how the experiment is going to end, nice and clean and something that can't be criticized. Instead of uh, going out and doing something new, they are not very happy about this. I'll give another small example. When I worked at an oceanographic laboratory in uh, Miami, University of Miami, I was very excited in my first day out there on, on the uh, Virginia Key. I could look out my laboratory window and see the, the ocean right there, and yet we were using preserved specimens. Yeah. And I had several friends who liked to dive and actually see what was going on in the reef with the organisms there in their own environment. And we got fairly heavily criticized for having too much fun by <laughs> going out diving. Yeah. Yeah, it, it a really, perfect example. Well, well, I mean, it's it's very similar to to this notion of peer review. That that luckily we have some mainstream scientists criticizing. And peer review is so important to be published in a mainstream scientific journal. Peer review being the article, research, experiment has to be has to be reviewed by your peers where well your peers are within this box so if you write something outside <laughs> of the box it's not going to be approved by the peers and and to his credit uh, Lee Smolin who I had a guest on the show about a year and a half ago uh, who wrote a book the trouble with physics and if I had to recommend 10 10 books that everybody should read it would be the trouble with physics mm -hmm. that book he parenthetically he criticizes uh, string theory and the and the um, and how string theorists and is is dominating science right now. But anyways, he criticizes peer review for the same reason that all it is it's a self perpetuating belief system. It's like a kangaroo, what we would call a kangaroo court. Uh, yes, absolutely. And I'm I had suffered terribly from that. I actually uh, had had studied every book I studied. Uh, endlessly to do my uh, defense of my doctoral dissertation uh, in uh, actually the behavior of uh, one of the cleaning shrimps, which now became famous at, in Nemo. It was the barber shrimp, which very little was known about. And I reversed the whole theory in science. And yet I answered every question on my defense, and they told me to go back and get a master's degree. I needed more statistics. And I said, what do I need more statistics? For when I've dyed uh, the fish slime that this little parasite picker supposedly is eating the fish slime, which is a uh, albuminate substance, very much like egg white, yeah. and getting its nutrition that way, you reverse a whole new, a whole theory, and that's what you get. Bang. Yeah. And so I went on and got enough for 
two, maybe two or three PhD degrees in conventional science later on. So yeah, it, 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 <laughs> it, it goes right. It goes it goes down. I mean, it really it really is um, sort of sad and humorous, but it, it's all about about going outside the box. And again, <laughs> science preaches that that you need to go outside the box to solve a theory. You have to be it has to be a crazy theory. It has to be original. It has to be open minded. But as soon as you do, you're not gonna get your your thesis approved. You're not gonna get your article published. You're not gonna get your degree. You know And, and you're and, not gonna get your funding. That's and you're not, really right. where a lot of Ex a lot of the pressure comes from. Exactly, exactly. And so uh and so this is but luckily, Elliot, and this is where this is the positive news. Luckily, there's enough people out there like you, like me. Marion Knight is another example who's going to be a guest on my show, by the way. I think January 24th, uh, the founder of New Consciousness Review. There's so many people who are pushing the, the envelope here, who are pushing the boundaries, going outside the box. And at some point, um, I think we're going to have that shift and I love talking about the shift. You yourself, and this is a quote from your book, you talk about, you say, at this time in history, we stand at the threshold of a revolutionary shift in human consciousness. And I love, I love the word shift. What, what do you mean by that? Uh, a shift is uh, a shattering glimpse of the obvious uh, <laughs> in many cases. And I wanted to go back to, I started talking about, you remember the high-definition television? Right. And the fact that information from the higher realms was said to come in light-encoded packets. Right. What are those? Pixels. Right. And I started to think about this, and fairly recently, uh, a couple months ago, I went to New York and uh, was able to see the latest in, in Super HD TV. Now, others... Uh, psychic people, psychically sensitive people, have said that television and all other forms of visual media are essentially spiritual waveguides. Hmm. In other words, it influences the brain, slash, it, which influences the mind, which has been proven to be separate for the brain, if you want to get into technology uh, terms. And actually, it's changing the consciousness as we speak. So while people are watching their their favorite denial uh, activities, uh, denial to get away from the real reality shows, such as sports events, they're getting, they're getting their consciousness shifted automatically. And this is my own theory and personal opinion, but it's based on input from others that I've talked to. That's kind of a remarkable thing when you think about it, and none of the New Age people had ever mentioned this kind of thing. Are, are, you, are you talking that there's a relationship between the effectiveness of television and the resolution yes okay. the the high resolution contains essentially thousands and thousands of hmm. old uh, thousand times more information from the old CRTs you know the old right. tube TVs right hmm well, that that's interesting because you know there's another another way to look at that is um, in computer games, yes, where okay. they're they're becoming so realistic, oh, and and yes. luckily and luckily I didn't I did not advance beyond Pong or 
couple of the golf games and then I then it just passed me by I don't have the time for computer games but if you look at those I mean I at some point you can't tell a difference between a simulated world and a real world and it's 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 it it's as shown by many of the the movies now I mean I, I looked at I think I saw the Hobbit movie the last Hobbit movie recently and I'm trying to figure out what's real and what's not real it's it's <laughs> yeah. hard it's hard to figure it out and it, I think it was in your book um, yeah it was your it was in your book where you said something um, and, it's, and there's a lot of things original here folks uh, this I mean we're talking I just want everyone to know that Elliot Maynard is an original thinker here you're not going to be seeing a lot of regurgitation of old ideas but one of the things that you say here is about a picture speaks a thousand words in a video speaks so many pictures and then and the reality does something else. I think that was you. Virtual uh, reality is yeah. worth a thousand uh, or a direct experience is worth a thousand videos. Yeah. But, yes, and I also feel that the being able to put a whole virtual world of a video game and all that goes with it on a compact disc or, or other storage device is one of the miracles of our time. Yeah. Because this kind of thing is one of the greatest learning tools uh, we have available. And, and it's although it's been more in the entertainment field, it's also a way for people to get out their aggressions without, without killing other, other yeah. people and, and are destroying the planet. So yeah. I think that there's tremendous potential in virtual reality and uh, video games and just one example uh, very expensive uh, mining machinery these great big uh, steam shovels that use column steam shovels still and uh, earth movers uh, are very expensive to run for when you want to train someone to use it so if you can do most of it by virtual reality fighter planes uh, right. military aircraft again you can train them to a certain point with virtual reality, it's very cost-effective. There you go. Nuts and bolts for a kind of consciousness interfacing. Uh. Well, well, on, on that note, and we're running out of time, but on that note, what what is your view on improving the content in order to improve consciousness? In other words, well, the demand has to be there right. uh, because these things, as you know, are market-driven. Good point. But I believe as more and more um, young folks become so adept at, at creating these wireframe, you know, this this whole computer uh, uh, design CAD CAD programs, that we're going to see a whole new virtual world. There's some real real advantages in this as kids right anywhere in the world can travel, they could be pen pals and have dialogue, or they can go to a coral reef in Indonesia and actually be underwater there and and, uh, and take field trips, yeah. uh, digital field trips, as you will. I yeah. used to call the uh, computer a global schoolhouse in the box. Yeah, I think, that, that. I think that that is, you know, and it, and it leads to um, something a lot of us have, have, have thought about over the years is you know is instead of going to war you you send your robots out there and then and then you send your virtual gaming but then if one side wins does that mean that you that you uh, are taken over virtually or that you're taken over reality but but there's 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 so much here and I don't want to I don't want to end without asking you about um, the future man. I mean, I see here that um, 
you know that some some folks have, ref, have, ref, have referred to you uh, kindly I think as the human from the future I mean what what do you think the future really holds what do you think we have the best what what has the best shot of of actually coming to fruition you think in the next hundred years or so well uh, certain technologies like uh, like 3d printing are going to change the world as we know it uh, high definition um, you know, video uh, is another one that's changing the consciousness globally. And of course, uh, having this international dialogue via the global minefield, as we're doing right now, is a miracle that has happened uh, so so slowly and, and subtly that suddenly we're in a different world than we were uh, 50 years ago. Yeah, yes, that is so true. Now, uh, Elliot, um, We've quickly come to the end. Why don't you tell folks how to learn more about you? Okay. Uh, my new book, Brave New Mind, Living in a Future Science World, is available uh, both in ebook format and paper book, paperback on Amazon.com. And if you go to our foundation website, which is arcosielos, one word, A-R-C-O-S-C-I-E-L-O-S.com. Uh, you will find a whole series of interviews on the book. You can go on YouTube and Google my name, Elliot Maynard, and find that um, the, a number of uh, dialogues and discussions about the book. Yeah, well, well, I want to thank you for what I what I hope um, the listeners believe and uh, has been a very mind-opening uh, show into the into the future of science. And it reminds me of the definition of science, which is, remember, the state or fact of knowing. That's what science means, the state or fact of knowing. It's specialized knowledge derived from observation, study, and experimentation carried out in order to determine the nature or principle of what is being studied. It is supposed to be a mind-opening venture into expanding our knowledge, expanding our minds. And I think that in, in this, uh, in Elliot's book, Brave New Mind, Living in a Future Science World, he, he pushes the boundaries here into some fields which are on various, various stages of development. But I think that by by doing so, by going outside the box, he's showing what science will look like uh, in the next hundred years, and this could only be a good thing as we, as we move beyond this restricting, limiting box of conventional science. This is Philip Camello. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, hosted by Philip Camella. To find out more about Philip and his book, The Collapse of Materialism, visit thecollapseofmaterialism.com.